Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of June 17th, 2019. On the show today, you know, we should really catch up on all the news. It's been too long. And Jim starts previewing some of the theme park announcements we're likely to hear at Disney's D23 conference coming up in August. And speaking of Jim, let's bring in the man who says that if you die in the same hospital you were born in, the average distance you traveled throughout your life is zero. One Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Uh, ben, I've spent entirely too much time in the hospital these past four weeks. Uh, for those of you folks who don't know, Nancy's being, being been prepped for back surgery, which, by the way, was successfully completed just this past Wednesday. Uh, but in the run-up to that procedure, Len, I spent dozens upon dozens of hours in hospital waiting rooms as Nancy went through test, stress tests and EKGs and cardiac catheterizations. And all I had for company were five-year-old issues of Cosmo. <laughs> I, I can't wait to hear uh, Rosie Perez's sex tips, Jim, from you. Well, <laughs> I, I tend to go the other way. I found out I'm an autumn, and if I still had any hair, I should get my roots touched up. So. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Jim, I forgot to mention on the last show that I went drinking with your ex-wife in Disneyland. She is lovely, Jim, with lots of insider Disney knowledge. And we're going to talk about some of that later on the show, but we had a great time. Also, before I forget... Your ex asked me to give you a message. Not actually really a message. It was a it was more of a gesture, really. Actually more like a like a like a stabbing motion over and over and over again. Uh, she also said that she's really looking forward to seeing you soon and she's thinking maybe it'll be a surprise visit. So that was that was nice. Thank you for the <laughs> heads up, Len. Let me just a quick personal note here. Look into restraining order. There we go. Okay, you were saying? <laughs> Jim, let's do a shout out over uh, to subscribers at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Ryan S, Ryan T, and Doug L, and longtime subscribers English Pit, Brendan S, and Shane S. Fun fact, Jim, and a secret of Disney theme parks. These folks are the talented musicians who play the floating instruments you hear in the Madame Leota scene in the Haunted Mansion. Every day... They put on black bodysuits and get strapped into wires, floating above the doom buggies, and they do their thing. I learned so much doing this show, Len. I really, <laughs> I do. <laughs> It'd be easier to just record everything and play it back on tape, but you've got to hand it to Disney to try and make it as real as possible. This is true. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Uh, don't forget, folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast, for a worry-free travel experience every time. Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, we said a couple of weeks ago that FastPass rationing was coming to Disney's Hollywood Studios on August 29th. A couple of days after the show came out, lo and behold, Disney confirmed it. So starting August 29th, the day that Galaxy's Edge opens in Walt Disney World, all rides except Star Tours will move to Tier 1, meaning you can only choose one in advance. So Tier 1 will be Tower of Terror, Rock and Roller Coaster, Toy Story, Slinky Dog, and Alien Swirling Saucers. Tier 2 is going to be all the shows. Jim, did Disney ever decide whether Star Tours or Fantasmic would have FastPass at all? The last I saw, the answer was no. I think they're still leaning in that direction, though. I, I was just hearing Muppet Vision is tier two, isn't it? I believe so. Oh, right. Yeah. So I think that's considered a show. And again, it's a high capacity thing. Mm -hmm. Again, the idea for all of this is everyone will get at least one ride fast pass based mm -hmm. on the larger than usual crowds that they're expecting for, uh, for Galaxy's Edge. This is more about getting people off the streets into traditional queues, which then 
allows for extra guests to come into the park. Oh, good point. Yeah, yeah. You don't want uh, you don't want those pesky guests guests clogging up the uh, the walkways. You want them in mm-hmm. shows and shops and restaurants. Given what's been happening at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge over the past week, 10 days, you got to wonder if the folks at Walt Disney World are maybe rethinking their operational strategy for, for Disney Hollywood Oh, I, I think they are, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you, do you want to talk about that? I mean, the whole thing of, of people who booked reservations and how Disney has actually been reaching out to them going, hey, I see you're only bringing one person. Yeah. How about bringing... One more, or even two more. So when these when these reservations originally came out, it was extremely restricted. Once you made the reservation for people, you couldn't add or change anyone in there. And I think Disney was thinking that they didn't want people selling the slots. So yep. uh, Jim, if I had you know you and mm. you and my and my family on my reservation, and I had you mm. know all four slots booked, I couldn't change those. I, you could do it, but you had to do it in person that day. I mean, it was it was a hassle. And when you went, you had to bring, you know, photo ID. I think they took a cheek swab for DNA when I was there. Not entirely sure because it was early in the morning. But there was, there was a process. I mean, you, you know, Disney can put a process in place, right? Mm-hmm. And then about a week to 10 days after Galaxy's Edge opened, we saw a distinct trend where nobody was going to Disneyland, right? Mm-hmm. On, our, on our scale of 1 to 10, Disneyland Park itself was a one virtually every day, and DCA wasn't much more crowded. The end result was, the thing. That we, the conclusion that we came to was this. Locals, who make up the majority of visitors that go to Disneyland, who didn't have a reservation for Galaxy's Edge, didn't have a reason to go to the park. They're like, eh, I'll go when it's open to everyone. And as a result, the parks were dead, dead, Jim, deader than dead. So what Disney started doing is they started contacting people with reservations who said, did we say four people? We meant 10 Bring as many people as you want. Random, random strangers from the streets. Good friends you haven't seen in years. The in-laws that you haven't spoken to in decades. Bring them to Galaxy's Edge. We'll put them on the reservation. Everything will be fine. The more, the merrier. Now, running parallel to that effort was that the employees of the actual Walt Disney Company <laughs> yeah, guest members you know, to the effect of, look, your main gate is not going to work at the park to what? Yeah, they're like, basically, don't even show up in Anaheim, right? Your, your yeah. Anaheim privileges have been revoked, mm-hmm. you know, to, to borrow a phrase from Pulp Fiction. But then, in the same week to 10 window, it's like, hey, did we say you couldn't go to, to California? No, Avenger? come, come twice. Yeah, yeah. Bring, bring, in fact, come hungry. Bring your yeah. appetite. We've got lots of food for you here. Yeah, oh. they've, um, they've switched around on a lot of those things right now. And that's actually helped a little bit. Given the number of uh, cast members that they employ, plus the number of uh, extra people that you can bring in on your reservations now, we've seen the crowds ju- jump from you know one on our one to ten scale all the way to two, Jim. Oh. But still, still mm. very, very, very low crowds. And don't forget, they committed to this for uh, at least another uh, at least another week. Yeah. So they're basically yeah. <laughs> losing a month of attendance during summer uh, because well. they, now, now they, they said, let me say, we all expected high crowds. Oh yeah, right. We yeah. all expected it, and I think the reservation system is the is the thing. By putting that in place, you're basically telling people, unless you're one of the you know small number of thousands who can get into Galaxy's Edge, nothing's changing for you. All right, so it ends on the 24th, right? So it's yeah. the 25th, and then it goes to can- a virtual queue system like an A B C D slot, and that's going to be interesting to see. Um, mm-hmm. My big question there is: Let's say you showed up at nine o'clock in the morning. Are you do you mm-hmm. automatically get the first slot? Or can you say, I'd like to return 
during time period B, C, or D because I've got you know dining reservations or other fast passes yeah. that, you know, that I have to do, right? Can you, can you pick your window or are you just giving you know, first come, first available? My guess is it's going to be uh, you show up and you get your reservation time and it's just going to go in order sort of like fast pass does. And that's going to complicate things for a lot of people. Again, those who want to take midday breaks, those who've got existing fast pass reservations or dining reservations or things like that, Disney's going to have to figure that out too. And, and I think, by the way, this is exactly what's going to happen in Walt Disney World. I think Disney's uh, world has learned that a hard reservation system is not going to be the thing for World, but that this virtual queue might help. By the way, did you notice, Jim, that um, that the Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom are opening like at 7 a.m. for the first two months that Galaxy's Edge is open? There's got to be blow-off land. There's got to yeah, be places be. for these people to go. And 7 a.m. I mean, seven a 7 a.m. opening is basically uh. New Year's Eve. I, the equivalent I, of New Year's Eve, where you know you're showing up at like six twenty, six thirty. It'll be worth it alone to kind of walk into the park and catch Mickey still in his bathrobe with coffee, like <laughs> <laughs> unshaven. Oh, yeah, I'm like, Hi, kids! Excuse me. <laughs> it's gonna be one ear flopped over. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's yeah. a great. That's a great idea for a Mickey Mouse cartoon. We'll let Paul Reddish and team know. Yeah, exactly. We should totally do that. All right. Jim, uh, speaking of things we said on previous shows, it looks like we were wrong about the intent of that small world survey from a couple of weeks ago. Remember the one that uh, that asked whether theme park guests had actually visited uh, It's a Small World, and we were speculating that it might be because they were eyeing that particular piece of land. It looks like Disney sends that question out for most rides, not just small world, so I shouldn't have read so much into that. I apologize. Uh, yeah, no, this is... What is it? The old Indian piece of folklore about you know six blind men come across an an elephant and you know one's got his trunk and it's oh an elephant is long and stringy like a, a snake and one's got on his hands and knees dealing what what falls out of elephants and it's oh an elephant is soft and mushy. Um, so <laughs> so I'm sorry with you know the information we gave out the last time around was soft and mushy, folks. So, so I'll I'll, t- I'll take the hit for that. Okay. So. All right, Jim, in, in other new news, over at Universal, Hagrid's Coaster opened recently at Islands of Adventure, um, Jim, with 10-hour waits in line. Have you gotten a chance to see this yet? No, again, I've, I've been up here in New England playing nursemaid to Nancy, but the folks at Universal were nice enough to in, invite me down to last week's press event, so it was, but family has to come first. So when, when uh, we begged off and when Nancy's back sealed, we're going to take Alice down to Florida to try this out for ourselves, but... That said, Seth Kaberski, longtime trusted member of the unofficial guide, as well as husband of the lovely Genevieve, he's gotten to ride it a number of times now. Yep. And Seth is pretty tough in regard to attractions. He flat out loves this thing. He not only says it's one of the top five rides at Universal right now, he thinks it may be one of the top coasters currently running in the country. And the only flaw that he's mentioned is this whole... It's outdoors, you know, it's if there's coaster, lightning, yeah, yeah uh, rain on the horizon, it has to shut down. And in fact, the pictures of the folks yesterday waiting in line to be there for opening day, that that looked tough. But, you know, all of them that did get to ride it just seemed to love it. Yeah, and it looked like it was it was a legitimate line, maybe not 10 hours, but I know I know of people who waited at least seven to ride. So, uh, and, and I checked on them and they were at the seven hour mark and still hadn't ridden, but it was getting close. So, yeah, I mean, 10 hours is entirely plausible. I thought it was... Uh, Universal just sort of overreacting and trying to get people to go somewhere else in the park, but it looks like ballparkish. It was about right. Mm-hmm. So if you're down over the next month, let's get together and we can uh, we can ride it together. Cool, that'll be great. Look forward to it. Awesome, Jim. Speaking of being together, the last time you and I were together, I mentioned mm-hmm. that Sporks 
mm-hmm. where the hot new eating utensil at Galaxy's Edge, it looks like they proved too irresistible a souvenir for many people, Jim, because they appear to be gone from Disneyland or back to plastic cutlery throughout the galaxy. Jim, any chance of these appearing in Walt Disney World or has that ship sailed? $80 on eBay. The weird thing is that if you talk with anybody in food service, they're just anticipating the crowds that are so huge that they're making these changes. I mean, if you're about what they're doing in Backlot Express, they're actually stripping out props that have been in there since the park opened to create that much more room for people to eat. Oh, yeah, they're getting rid of uh, the props in the cages right on either side of the... Uh, yeah. yeah. And that's a big place to begin with, but I mean, yeah, oh, but that'll, God, that'll clear yeah. out some space, yeah. Yeah, and if it were me, you know, okay, don't put the sporks in Galaxy's Edge. Put them in the Pizza Rizzo. Because you know, no one's going there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, give people an incentive to go. It's like, here's your complimentary spork to steal. You know, enjoy your pizza. You know, whatever it takes to get people through the door there. My idea was actually to attach the sporks to the trays. <laughs> and then as soon as I said it, it sounded too much like prison. <laughs> it was probably, probably not the thing that the, the image that Disney wanted to convey there. You know, you give them, you give them the spork, you give them the middle tray. They're already in lines. I mean, they're already used to regimentation. You just put some masking tape lines down. On the uh, on the floors of the restaurants and tell everyone to stand behind it until they're called. I, you know, I, it's just <laughs> we have a new I, restaurant I, concept here, Jim Alcatraz. I, I was thinking more to the effect of the, the people who still would try to take it and say, no, 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 big giant rectangular thing in my bag. That's my iPad. You know, I'll be I'll be using that to block somebody's view of a parade very soon. You know, so. it's my tablet. It's my tablet. There we go. So, <laughs> all right, Jim. Speaking of Galaxy's Edge, a question uh, for you from listener Jaws. Hi, Jim and Len. I've heard the $1 billion price tag for Galaxy's Edge a few places now, including on your show. I was in Disney World a couple weeks ago and spoke with a cast member who had gotten to tour Galaxy's Edge and said the budget was over $3 billion. I don't know if the cast member was referring to one or both iterations of the land. I'm curious if you've heard the final cost numbers over $1 billion or if that $3 billion number sounds at all realistic. Thanks so much. All right. Realistically, Len, the wild card here is, of course, Rise of the Resistance. Yep. They're, they're still spending money on the project, so we're not sure what the total is going to be, right? No, that's it exactly. I mean, the, this is a moving target. And if we could just get BioReconstruct to switch to X-ray vision to show people the number of people who are inside the giant Rise of the Resistance building trying to get this thing fixed, we'd get a you know, far better handle on what the cost is. I'm not saying that's not possible, Jim. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> Get right Amazon sells infrared uh, photography equipment, right? <laughs> oh, okay. Things just got interesting. Uh, have you heard, by the way, that the current plan is to have Anaheim's Rise of the Resistance open on the same weekend that Galaxy's Edge opens at Walt Disney World? So August 29th. Ish. All right. Now, remember, you and I have both heard 24 different show scenes, very challenging to keep this thing up and running for more than 15 minutes at a time. It you know, it could be as late as early 2020 if they can't get certain issues done. But the, yeah, the I've heard wish, everything from August to, yeah, to early 2020. But the wish, the hope is they desperately want to have it open in Anaheim at the same time because that one-two punch of Look at this amazing land that just opened in Orlando, and hey, the ride that everyone's been waiting for is just open in Anaheim. That tsunami of positive press, especially given what they've been dealing with for these first couple of weeks, right? They'd love that. So that's the pressure is really, really, really on. On the other hand, they're planning unfolding a good chunk 
of the construction costs of Galaxy's Edge are going to feature items that were built for the Star Wars boutique hotel across. Oh, right. You know, because they can remember, there's supposed to be that seamless transportation system that takes you from the hotel over to the park and vice versa. So there's going to be a station built inside the park that, uh, by the way, it's supposedly going to be kind of a discreet back alley kind of a thing. Oh, that makes sense. So the, the whole world isn't going to seek it out. What they're willing officially to say at this point is that the $600 million price point that was out there initially about that, that's longer ago in the rearview mirror. So combined construction costs of 1.2. Last I heard, they were at 1.5. The fix that supposedly needs to be made for Rise of the Resistance has been budgeted for $15 million apiece, Len. I mean, that's a tiny fraction of $1.5 billion. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, low single digits. It's not even, I mean, it's not a rounding error, but it's at this point, you're like, yeah, that's fine. 50 million. I mean, Bob know, Iger uh, might not even have to sign off on 50 million at this point. <laughs> There's a cast member in, in the official costume and he's like, 50 million. Okay. Give me the, give me the pen. I'll, I got this one. There you go. There you go. And, and what certainly helps in this situation is that if you look at the lines at Ogus Katina, if you look at the, oh, yeah. you know, uh, how everybody talks about the uh, Save's workshop hand-built lightsabers. Fantastic. It was a fantastic experience. It's like, look, yes, it's expensive, but man, they love it. And, you know, it was a good choice. It was, we'll get the operation of the shields handled. So speaking of Ogus Cantina, I was, um, I was asked by uh, uh, a reporter to estimate how fast reservations will go for Ogus Cantina once the land opens up to the general public. So he had done some timing and got some data from Disney. It said that uh, all of the reservations for his particular time slot, I think were gone in, I think it was literally two minutes when his, his four-hour group was in. Within a few, it may, it may be a few more than that. But anyway, what I, I, I calculated that in a given day, every reservation slot at Oga's would be taken up inside of uh, 50 minutes once the park is open at that rate. So if you <laughs> the park opens at 9 by 10, all of the reservations for the day will be gone. I know we talked previously about some of the empty storefronts. I mean, if you wander the back streets and that sort of thing. Well, they haven't opened the, uh, I mean, there's there's space for a table service restaurant that just didn't get built. Yeah, well, maybe that'll be another cantina, Lynn. I'm just saying. They've already begun doing the meetings and let's not make any decisions now. Let's Let's wait till the end of the first summer. Let's gather... Yeah, that info. Let's, let's, let's see, see what happens when the actual Orlando. crowds are there. And, yeah, so yeah, we'll, that's it exactly. That makes sense. You know, just let's stick with the plan till we get the real data. Jim, speaking of uh, of crowds in summer, uh, have you noticed how low uh, crowds have been both not only at Disneyland, which we just talked about, but also mm-hmm. at Walt Disney World? Yeah, that's not really a surprise. I mean, we were talking about the whole artificial dampening effect of Galaxy's Edge opening in late August is is having overall. Yeah. But also, I mean, this is this is summer vacation. Uh, but mm-hmm. we've noticed for the last couple of years that summer vacations aren't nearly as busy as they used to be. And I think the delayed opening of Galaxy's Edge is exacerbating that trend. But a, a telling sign for this is that Disney World just released a get-your-ears-on ticket discount for Florida residents. And Florida residents make up around half of all Walt Disney World visits with a four-day ticket that averages around $55 per day or about half the cost of a regular ticket. Yeah. And uh, apparently Disney's media relations group has been asked to do their part in drumming up business too by contacting travel writers and bloggers to talk about anything, Jim, anything at all (laughs) that's new or different in the parks. So I got some examples. So a writer friend of mine was recently contacted by media relations to do an article on 
new hamburgers and desserts coming to Restaurantosaurus at the Animal Kingdom. New restaurants. And it wasn't just sending out a press release for this. Disney wanted to talk on the phone about it like right then to ensure that those blog posts got written that day. And I've, I've heard from other friends that other like minor things like the, the Tom Hanks and Tim Allen being in Toy Story Land for Toy Story 4 promo, all of that has got them last minute media invitations to come down to the parks and cover it all as if it was a, a major thing. I mean, is this business as usual for media relations, Jim? It, or, or, is, or is this actually something else? You know what this brings to mind me, Len, is that have you ever heard the stories about when L.A. Uh, had the Summer Olympics in, in 1984? Oh, when everyone left town. Yeah, everyone yeah, rented out their yeah. homes and left town, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was the worst year ever for Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm, and Universal. In fact, there's a lot of folks, if you talk at the company, because they had just spent uh, $35 million in two years of time redoing Fantasyland at Disneyland and assuming that, well, this will help us with people who are in town for the Olympics are going to come here and see the new Fantasyland. And when they didn't show, this was kind of the last domino that mm. took out Ron Miller. Middle of the very next month, September, Ron Miller is out. And by the end of the month, Michael Eisner is the new head of the Walt Disney Company. So, but as long as we're talking about things like Toy Story uh, 4 having its press event, mm-hmm. if you want to see some people who are in episode 9 that maybe you want to book a trip to the Disneyland Resort, say, in late November, early December? Because maybe... Oh, that's when they're be... doing the uh, the film promo for episode nine? In much the same way, of it looks great to have, you know, Tom Hanks standing with Woody, uh, you know, in Toy Story Land as he talks up Toy Story 4, uh, you know, to have Daisy Ridley. You know, in fact, wouldn't it be great if they got Daisy Ridley to stand... With that Ray performer that oh, you oh so <laughs> I'm convinced of. that it's the same person. Yeah, so. Well, there we go. All right. There comes. So if Disney, doesn't, if, if Disney doesn't do it, Jim, then my theory will be confirmed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there we go. Your move, Iger. Your move. Okay. <laughs> Folks, after this uh, commercial break, Jim will start telling us what big announcements are coming to this year's D23 convention. We'll be right back. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I mentioned earlier that in talking to your ex-wife, both you and I have been able to confirm some long-standing rumors about new unannounced theme park attractions for D23. Now, let's not spill all of the beans at once, um, but can you tell us some of what we're likely to hear? Let's start with one specific topic, which is the expansion of the UK Pavilion. In Epcot. In Epcot. Okay. All right. There's been talk of this as far back as summer of 1982, when the Walt Disney World second gate, you know, hadn't even opened to the public yet. They were, mm-hmm. as they were walking Walt Disney World cast members around the World Showcase worksite and familiarization tours, as they took them around the still under construction UK Pavilion, 
They'd say things to the effect of, we start with the lagoon. The front has to be a water element. The pub in the British Pavilion has two aspects. On the lagoon side, it's a replica of a waterside pub on the Thames, used by the boating population, whereas the street side, it's supposed to represent a pub in Soho. And as just a throwaway as they're walking through the site, and, oh, there are plans to soon open a British music hall in the pavilion. Uh, this will have a live show with dinner. What's Huddershell then? Well, I got a hold of this letter from Professor Lawrence Selznick from Tufts University, and he was the director of graduate studies in their drama and dance department. And in the early 1980s, Walt Disney Productions hired Professor Selznick to be a consultant on Epcot's British Music Hall pro. And this is how he recalled working on the project. And it's really kind of a snapshot of what Disney was like back in the day, Glenn. I was brought down to Walt Disney World to advise on a Victorian music hall intended to be the performance feature of the English component of Epcot. It soon became clear that what was required was not so much my professional expertise, but by amateur, by my specialization in English music halls. The architects had already drawn up their plans, and when I was shown the blueprints and elevations, I pointed out that the bar was in the wrong place, the spatial relations with the audience, the stage was distorted, and the overall effect was less a British variety theater than it was a saloon in a Hollywood horse opera. And it turned out that the, one of the Disney executives had attended such a, a reconstructed musical in San Francisco and just wanted that clone for Orlando. Oh, geez. So drink is a very major element of musical ambience, both economically and culturally. But the Disney people were very nervous about encouraging alcoholism and wanted to play down the availability of beer. Maybe it could be near beer or camouflage soft drinks. Mm -hmm. And anything approaching a real musical performance would have to be at least a half hour to allow the variety of turns to show their stuff. But Disney's policy was to keep guests in motions. Most indoor presentations of the parks last under 10 minutes, and, and that would prove problematic if food was going to be served in the atmosphere at early song and supper. So there, there'd be no time to prepare, order, and consume mutton chops, baked potatoes, and deviled kidneys. <laughs> Probably not for the U.S. population. Deviled kidneys. Disney evidently pushed back, you know, to, to the effect of, that was a little too heavy for a tropical climate. And, uh, oh, but, and but Alfredo's fine. Fine. There we go. <laughs> okay. Right. Two different teams of people working on two different pavilions. Yeah. And the Disney people were really concerned about sort of the body stuff that you do in English music hall. And, and they wanted, you know, sort of gay 90s, bicycle blue, blue, two, in, in short, the Disney version of Mary Poppins. And okay. so they actually took... This executive, too, they want, They showed him the type of show that they were not necessarily wanted to do, but they were kind of nervous about it. It was literally one of these Kids in the Kingdom show that performed for a group of insurance executives who were having a convention at Disney. And okay. the guy sitting there, and like, what frightened them about the show was we, we had Disney employees dressed as gangsters. And, oh, my God, that, thank goodness the insurance executives didn't walk out. So it's like, can we do something like this? And the poor guy's like, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. It's not British, but you can yeah. do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So anyways, finishing up his letter here, that, that needless to say, when Epcot opened, the Victoria Music Hall was not among its attractions. The English performance featured at present is an open-air burlesque Shakespeare that bears little relation to any traditional British popular entertainment. But it has the benefit of being rapid and non-consequential, catching the visitors on the hoof, and confirming their belief that Shakespeare is something remote, antiquated, and ripe for kidding. 
from the moment Epcot opened and had it, its uh, attendance issues, expansions, sizable expansions like this were off the table for a while. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, as Disney's doing surveys, the thing that immediately comes back is like, okay, uh, there's just not enough here for kids. So we've talked on earlier shows about the KidCot project and Eptot. But one of the ways that Disney wanted to initially address this is they were going to take that expansion pad that was between the UK and Canada and create this elaborate topiary-filled hedge maze-like space called the Fantasy Forest. And what was great about this, it was going to be an English public garden kind of a feel. And as you made your way through the maze, you'd come across these photo ops. But the gimmick of the whole area is it's all of these characters from Disney films that are based on great English children's books. So Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland. You'd come around and here'd be this setup with three or four different characters and you could step in, get your picture taken. And I've been in British theme park mazes, hedge mazes before. So the one in, in, in currently in the UK pavilion has like knee high height Mm -hmm. shrubs in, in, so you can literally see where you're walking in, in Mm -hmm. a traditional British theme park maze, the hedges are like 10 feet tall and Mm -hmm. super thick. You can't see through them. It's like, it's like running through a cornfield, but obviously a British hedge maze. So in that context, you wouldn't be able to see these characters until they literally, you know, you turn the corner and you came across them. That's how the surprise would be, right? It's not like you could just see Robin Hood through the hedge maze and, and no, walk not at all. I mean, no, you, it would literally be a surprise. Yeah, mind you, this is Disney. There'd be a marquee and there'd be photos outside letting you know what you'd find if you you went into the maze. Sure, this is middle of of the nineteen nineties that that this is being uh, proposed, but looming on the horizon is the the millennium and mm-hmm. the decisions made that. Epcot's going to be the center of millennium. And of course, as part of that is one of your favorite attractions in the history of the park, the Millennium Village. <sighs> parts of it were fantastic. Other parts yeah. of it were not. 65,000 square foot structure. Had 50 nations inside of it. But you remember from the, the moment they announced this, one of the reasons you had to go, it was a temporary exhibit. It was a temporary structure. It's, it's not going to be there forever. So it opens, what, October of 1999 and shuts down officially January 1st, uh, 2001. But since then has been every convention that comes to Walt Disney World does one of their after-hour parties there. That structure, at least 200 days out of the year, is in use and not to the general public. Oh, easily. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I've seen it used for mostly for corporate events, but also for, you know, for very large weddings. Oh, God, yeah. And, you know, 200 days out of the year, that's that's enough to pay for it. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is true. To get back to Fantasy Forest, one of the sets of characters you were supposed to encounter when you went into the maze was, of course, Mary Poppins. And mm-hmm. sadly... <laughs> I see a Mary Poppins meets the Shining sort of hedge maze <laughs> thing for Halloween. No? Oh, no? Oh, is it, so am I the only one? Listeners, I, am I the only one thinking of this? Okay, I, all right. I, all right, go ahead. Fine. The penguins lunch out and eat you. That's good. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's an idea. Go ahead. Okay. So the top part of the Millennium Village is the entrance pathway coming onto World Showcase Promenade. That literally goes right to the middle of where Fantasy Forest was going to be built. So the, this okay. idea is off the table. If we jump ahead now to just last year with Mary Poppins Returns, those of you who saw the film remember that it, it basically ends with 
There's a, a fair happening in the park right across the street from 17 Cherry Tree Lane where the Banks mm-hmm. family lives. As soon as the Imagineers saw this, they were like, okay, now we have a way in. This is where we kind of are right now, Len. The, the, the thinking is that uh, taking the park space that's already there, and if you remember sort of the way the, the back of the the UK Pavilion, the retail space, uh, mm-hmm. it's just, it just underused at this point. So what they, they're proposing doing, first of all, you take the back of that retail space of the UK Pavilion, the buildings that face toward where World Show Place is, and they retooled that as a couple of houses along uh, Cherry Tree Lane. You'll be able to identify Admiral Boom's place because of all the nautical stuff on the roof, and they'll actually build a practical door to 17 Cherry Tree Lane. Now, mind you, guests won't be able to come in, but Mary Poppins and Jack, not Bert, the character that Lin-Manuel Miranda played in Mary Poppins' Return, will hang out on the steps of 17 Cherry Tree Lane doing meet and greets, and when their shifts are over, they would just step through this practical door, which would be where a storage space is right now for some of the shops. Now, if you've seen the movie, Mary Poppins Return, you remember that there were some old-fashioned amusement rides in the park. We're talking carousel, a Ferris wheel, very, very low-tech, but charming. Mm-hmm. One point in the project, you know how in California right now, Len, the Flix Fun Flyers from A Bug's Land yep. has been retooled, repurposed, and is now about to debut is the Inside Out Emotional Whirlwind on Pixar yeah. Pier. When I was there, it looked it looked like it was any day now. I mean, okay. the, uh, all the prep work had been done, the painting, everything like that. I think they were in uh, test and adjust, but it should be it should be any day now that that opens. Okay. Well, supposedly they were also asked to sort of eyeball the other three or four attractions that had been used in a bug's land to see if there was anything there that could be repurposed for this Mary Poppins Returns project. Now, the downside is that, again, you can remember this was all in the works, well ahead of Mary Poppins Returns hitting theaters. Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this Rob Marshall movie comes out, doesn't quite do the business that was expected, and as happens with Disney... You see in in situations like that, the scope begins to get crept in that, you know, the company isn't willing to spend quite as much money on the project. And what I'm hearing right now is, you know, this Mary Poppins returns area could have been reduced to a single flat ride. And again, even the the meet and greet, the cherry tree lane thing may be off the table at this point, but wow. August is just around the corner and Bob Chapuk, the, the chairman of Disney parks, experiences and products, when he gets on stage at the uh, the D23 Expo and reveals what's new and what's next, Disney World Resorts around the world, according to the official press release, this presentation, which will be held in Hall D23 on Sunday, August 25th, will feature all sorts of info about the transformational plans that are now in the works for Epcot at the Walt Disney Resort in Florida. So maybe then... We'll get a, a definitive answer to Epcot's UK Pavilion. But do you want a Mary Poppins Returns area in World Showcase? Go out and buy oh, 10 or 15,000 copies of the Blu-ray. <laughs> and that'll get Disney's attention? Yeah. You know, just, hey, look at that. It's, it's, it's spiking sales. Let's do this. I don't know if you saw the, the talk that Chapek gave at the opening of Galaxy's Edge and someone was asking him about it. 
Disney using these billion dollar IPs that they would only build attractions around these sorts of things. And Bob was remarkably straightforward. He said, look, if our competitors had these very same properties, they'd use them in a heartbeat. This is a business. What gets people to book to go to the Disney parks are its characters, are the stories it tells. And that's what we're building for the parks. And uh, if you have a choice between a movie that made $300 million worldwide versus one that makes $1.5 billion worldwide, yeah. that's the way you're going to go. So. I totally understand it. Um, mm-hmm. So, Jim, uh, I guess we're, we've, we've started uh, down the path of previewing some of the other announcements that are coming, we think are mm-hmm. coming, with, uh, with D23. We'll, uh, we'll continue that in uh, upcoming shows. Sure, that works. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish podcast today. For more of us, head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Don't forget, we're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, whose vegan Dungeons & Dragons character is named Naughty Bean Sprout. So plus 10 nature, minus 10 intimidation. Also, don't forget to go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.